Good morning, Christ Church of Arlington. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to be with you. I, I, I give thanks for you and for your congregation and for your pastors and, and the friendship and the support that they've been to me, both Billy and, and Jimmy, and uh, getting to know Mark. Uh, I just thank you for your faithful and far-reaching work for the gospel in Arlington and the Washington area. Uh, it's, we give thanks at the seminary that we have such um, faithful and godly co-laborers, to use Paul's language, co-laborers in the kingdom. So thank you for your support for us. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to continue on. I'm kind of dropping into your series on John, and I know you've been going chapter by chapter, uh, and yet uh, Billy allowed me to come in and kind of do the second part. We're going to revisit chapter 6 here. We had part 1 of chapter 6 last week, and we'll do part 2 today. And as you know, but just as a point of reminder, this is kind of an important moment in the ministry of Jesus. This is a kind of a low point, we might say, even from the outside of things. Uh, It comes at a moment where it seems as if maybe, just maybe, this ministry is going to fail. Jesus had said something. He'd said something publicly that caused people to leave, caused people to be scandalized, caused them to maybe say, maybe he is just a madman. He was preaching, and as you know, going through the Gospel of John, the message of John is not merely that Jesus is teaching the Word of God. It's not merely that Jesus is teaching us the way of salvation, but that's that Jesus is the Word of God. John doesn't want us to miss this. He starts the whole gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word, halagos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. You see, we're reminded that Jesus is not merely a teacher of the Word. He is the Word itself. And as you remember from this previous passage in chapter 6, Jesus highlights this by using the picture of the wilderness wandering. He reminds his audience of Moses coming out of Egypt with the Israelites and taking them into the wilderness. And he reminds them, remember how they were fed while they were in the wilderness? It was in this this kind of miraculous giving of food from the heavens. Uh, a, thing, a thing that the Israelites called manna, right? Which means, what is it? <laughs> because you wake up in the morning and there it is. And that's how we get fed. And Jesus says, you too are like wilderness wanderers. You too need to be fed by the food of heaven. And then he turns and says this thing that seems to sink his whole ministry. He says, therefore you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And as is the case with his dialogue with Nicodemus, many in the audience take him literally where he is speaking of a deeper spiritual truth. He is not encouraging cannibalism of any type. He's not saying, like with Nicodemus, you must enter back into your mother and be born again literally. But he's talking about a spiritual feeding, and he is offering himself as that spiritual nourishment for all who are united with him in faith. This is the spiritual truth that he will later sacramentalize in the Lord's Supper. But nevertheless, at this stage in his ministry, this is a difficult teaching. And it says that many leave him, even many of his disciples. And that brings us to the passage that we're reading today. So this is John chapter 6, verse 60 
through 71. Hear the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. It's an interesting thing about Jesus' ministry, isn't it? There's something about how people are drawn to him even though they have no reason to be drawn to him. And yet there are others who reject him even though they have every reason to receive him. The passage that we're reading today is kind of dealing with that tension. You've probably had that experience in your own life. There have been those who you have prayed for and yearned for and loved and cared for. And every question that they had about the gospel was answered. And yet they never quite seemed to see the glory and the truth of the gospel message. And then maybe you've known others. There's probably even those of you, you can, some, some of them you can think of even now, right? Members of your family maybe, maybe your extended family, old childhood friends who you know were so rebellious, their hearts were so set against God, there was no reason why they would possibly name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And yet they do. The Apostle Paul himself is a great example of this. Someone for whom there's no reason to believe in Jesus and yet... They do. See, this passage is dealing with the inner dynamics of the Christian life in that way. It's dealing with the inner dynamics even of the life of the church. This is about the spiritual reality, the spirituality that is behind the act of salvation, behind the act of believing and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about those spiritual dynamics, but before we do, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this reading to you. We pray, Lord, that as we hear the Gospel of John, this rich and vivid account of the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we too, in the power of the Spirit, would see Jesus Christ afresh. Let us see him anew. Dear Lord, let this not just be another reminder of a thing that we've heard over and over and over again, Lord, and maybe have even drawn complacent about. But I pray, Lord, this would be something that lifts our hearts and our mouths in worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
So what are some of these spiritual dynamics of the church? What are some of these spiritual dynamics that are behind your faith? And I want to highlight one of them. The first one is this. Belief, of course, is more than just being a member of a group. Now, we'd all say, of course, that's true. It's more than just joining the church, right? Belief is about more than that. Saving faith is about more than that. I'd even say, though, this passage today draws attention to a group of people who are even more committed than just joining a church. Notice what they're doing. They've left their jobs behind. They left their lives behind. They've gone out into the desert to follow this man who many of their family and friends probably said is a heretic. Maybe he's a charlatan. We know from some of the other Gospels that there were other people like Jesus saying things kind of like him. People might have said, you too? Really? Really, Bill? You're going to be drawn after this guy out into the desert? They left jobs. They left relationships to follow this man around. And yet, as we see here, that is not enough. That is not necessarily the nature of true faith. This this, this passage is striking to me because it's one of those passages where you have Jesus himself giving the gospel message. We can't say something like, well, Jesus, you... You really didn't contextualize it well enough, okay? Or, or, or you, know, you didn't know your audience, and you need to understand and be, you, know, you need to be a Jew to a Jew and a Greek to the Greek, right? We can't give Jesus tips on his homiletics. We can't give him tips on his sermonizing. And yet when Jesus offers his own gospel, there are going to, going to be times when the majority of the audience walks up in the middle of the sermon and leaves through the back door. You see, one of the dynamics of the gospel is that it's about more than just membership in a group. Rather, number two, true faith is actually about the Spirit giving life. This doctrine that we call regeneration, that the Spirit enlivens the soul. The Spirit gives you life where there was no life. Paul even says, if you're a Christian, the Spirit has made you new creation, meaning that you are breathing the air of the new heavens and the new earth. You're breathing the air of the resurrection life. And that's why I believe many of us do feel a kind of tension, a kind of complexity in this world, because we're both living in this world in what Paul calls our body of death. And it's like like you have a straw. It's like you're underwater and you have a straw, and the straw goes out to the new heavens and new earth, and you're breathing that air, and it's creating this tension within you that Martin Luther calls being at once a saint and a sinner, simul justus et peccatoris, at once justified and also a sinner. But notice what Jesus says here. Jesus says that if the Spirit gives you life, then you will recognize who I am as Lord and Savior. You will hear my teachings about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and you will not flee. But if the Spirit doesn't give you life, Notice what he says here. He says, you could see me ascend to where I was before. So think about what he's saying there. He's saying, you could see me ascend up into heaven. We're not even talking about a miracle like you were healed from cancer. We're not talking about uh, you know, a dream. I work in the Middle East a good bit and get to train pastors who are converts from Islam. And one thing that's interesting is they almost all say that they had a dream. There's some dream that, that kind of drew them or opened their eyes to the Lord. But what's even interesting, more interesting about this is if you keep talking to Muslims in the Middle East, you'll find out that many of them have dreams and not all of them convert to Christianity. 
You see, Jesus is saying, you might even have a dream. You might be healed of a disease. You could even see me fly in the air, ascending up to heaven, and you would not believe if the Spirit is not in it. You see, if you say that Jesus is Lord and you believe it, that is because the Spirit of God has regenerated your heart so that you are giving testimony to his lordship and his saviorship. And it is the Spirit saying it within you. Paul says as much. He says, if you say Spirit, Jesus is Lord, then it's the Spirit saying it within you. And if you say Jesus is accursed and you mean it, it means the Spirit is not within you. Jesus says the Spirit lies behind the new life that gives faith. But then lastly, the more difficult teaching here is that Watching this congregation of people who had left their jobs and their relationships to follow Jesus, watching them desert him now when the teaching turned from Jesus' teaching to Jesus himself, right? They had accepted the teaching of Jesus Christ, but they had not accepted the teaching of Jesus Christ crucified. They accepted that he was their rabbi. They had not accepted that he was their Lord and Savior. We need to recognize that even in the church, there will be hypocrisy and there will be apostasy. Even in in a congregation where Jesus himself is the preacher. Now, I don't say this to be a downer. I say this to encourage you. This is an encouragement to pastors. This is an encouragement that because people leave the church or when people leave the church, it doesn't necessarily mean it's your preaching. There are people who will see the person of Jesus clearly and leave, just like they did in this account. Does that mean that we shouldn't consider how we preach, make sure we preach well, uh, you know, contextualize it to our audience, make sure we're teaching the whole counsel of God? Absolutely. I mean, I work at a seminary. This is what we encourage pastors to do. And yet we also need to remember that there were people who will see Jesus clearly and truly and will say, I want nothing to do with him. Paul will even say, for some people, when they see Christians, they will smell their own death on us because they know that Jesus does not merely come in salvation, but he comes in judgment. This is also, by the way, an encouragement for parents. Parents, you will raise your children, your covenant children. We will pray for them. We will lift them up. We'll raise them in the word. And yet we also need to recognize that this is the work of the Spirit that brings them to salvation. Let this be a relief to you. As was mentioned, I have five daughters. Yes, five. Yes, daughters. And it is an encouragement to me. As much as I strive for their salvation, as much as I strive to teach them the gospel, it's an encouragement to me to know that their salvation is not in my hands, but it is in the hands of the Spirit of the living God. We should find deep encouragement in this. And yet we need to remember that even when we do preach the gospel, even when we as Christians are drawn after Christ, we have to recognize that there are things that draw us back. There are things that pull us away that would hinder our relationship with the Lord. There are things that draw us away from the gospel. Just like that audience that heard him say, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and said, that's, that's going a bit too far. 
There are times when we will hear the teaching of Christ and we'll be pulled away. And maybe it'll be our fear of losing our reputations that people might find out who we, what we believe and how really strange this old ancient Near Eastern religion is that we buy into. Maybe our reputations will be hurt. Maybe, maybe our prestige will be dented. Maybe you'll even lose money. Maybe you won't get the promotion that you intended. Maybe you'll actually be called to something like missions or pastoral ministry. And guess what? Those jobs don't pay well. Maybe it'll be your family. I think one of the greatest struggles for the adult convert is having to be reconciled to their unbelieving family and to draw back, to pull them away from this thing that they have fallen into, that they have believed. Maybe it's just a need for rest. Maybe you're tired. And you say, Jesus, I'm tired. And that's pulling you away from the hope that you have in the gospel. See, the reason why I'm talking about this is because there are those who are drawn away from Christ because they are not regenerate. They do not have the spirit. Jesus tells us so. But notice, Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples And he turns to them and he says, what about you? Will you go too? This is what I want to focus on here for the end. Notice how Peter responds. Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to abandon me like these these others, the throngs that have left? And here we are before we had this huge congregation. People would have been talking about the incredible church growth methods that I'm using. And now it's empty. It's gone. And there's just my 12 friends. And one of them is a devil. I think actually the best way to translate that, one of them is the devil. I think Judas is embodying the devil in this account. But notice he's surrounded by his 12 closest followers, and he says, are you two going to leave? And notice what Peter doesn't say. Notice Peter doesn't say, what, are you crazy? We've seen your mighty works. We could never leave you. Notice Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say, oh, come on, I'll never leave you, Lord. I'll never deny you. He will say that later, but he doesn't say that here. Notice what Peter says. Where else are we going to go? You alone, you have the words of eternal life, and we believe in them. There's something about Peter's response that I think is meant to be read as the voice of someone who is tempted to leave. He says, where else would we go? Where else? I've looked around. Nothing else has what you have to offer. I'm not saying this isn't a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching teacher. But where else will we go? It kind of reminds me a bit like of a child singing this little light of mine, you know, in the dark as she's afraid to go to bed. And you know, she's saying, this little light of mine, like I'm not going to blow the shine. You know, you're kind, of, you're kind of holding on like I, I can do this. I can make it. And I feel Peter saying the same thing. Where else will we go? You're the only one who offers this. I think we also hear this in Peter's response, a kind of surrender. It's a surrender that we find throughout the scriptures. I think it's, almost be- it's probably best articulated in the psalmist in Psalm 73, 26, where he says, even though, listen to what he says in his song here, even though my flesh, my heart may fail, you alone, Lord, speaking to God, You alone are what? You alone are the one who's going to give me strength? He doesn't say that. 
You alone are the one who will give me blessings so I'll look back and see how it was all tied up in a nice bow at the end. He doesn't say that. What does he say? You alone are my portion. See, what I see Peter saying is that that kind of notion of surrender, he's realizing at this moment that this teacher is teaching difficult things. This teacher isn't necessarily popular. He's not going to necessarily be cool. He won't necessarily be socially acceptable. But he is your portion. He alone has the words of eternal life. In many ways, I think the Christian life of sanctification is growing out of what does Jesus give for me? What does he do for me? And laying hold of who Jesus is. And in doing so, you need to surrender like Peter and surrender like the psalmist in Psalm 73, 26. So let me speak briefly about this idea of surrender because that can sound kind of nebulous. It's sort of out there. Let me argue this, that when Peter is surrendering, when the apostles are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. They're not saying this is an easy walk or this is an easy life or this is an easy decision, but they're recognizing that he is worth it. The psalmist, when he says, Lord, my, my whole self, my body and my, my inner self, my heart and my flesh, my body may fail, but you are my portion. He's surrendering everything else to the Lord. I think for us... One of the important ways of thinking about this is surrendering our whole life. And that means surrendering our past, surrendering where we've been. Many of you have stories from your past, things that you probably consider your worst part, your greatest lack. Maybe it was a personal failure. Maybe it was something you did. Maybe it was something that was done to you. And it's the thing that you hold on to, whether you are even thinking about it consciously or subconsciously. It's the thing that kind of holds you back from enjoying and worshiping in the spirit of Christ. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I'm saying it's the thing that pulls you back, the thing that pulls you away, that dampens your joy. I have those things. I have those things that I think, Lord, man, if it wasn't for that, I'd be good. Think about the man in Mark 2 who's, who's lame from birth and here his friends bring him before Jesus Christ and he's laid before Jesus and he's been lame his whole life relying on other people. He probably always thought, you know, this is the one thing, if you could just take away the lameness, I could then live a normal life. And Jesus comes up to him and the moment arrives and he thinks, now I'll be healed. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. (laughs) And you know, he goes, "Uh, well, that's not really why I'm here. Okay. But then the Lord says, but to show you that I can, I do have the authority to forgive sins. Stand up and be healed. You see, the thing that was the man's greatest lack was the thing that brought him before his Savior who could meet his deepest spiritual need. You need to surrender your past. You need to recognize that maybe, just maybe, God knew what he was doing when he made you the way he made you. Maybe, just maybe, he knows your failure and he knows your hurt and he knows how that failure has made you uniquely suited for the grand purpose that he has in store for you. This doesn't mean ignoring your pain or acting like it didn't happen doesn't mean mindlessly saying, well, all things work together for good and not reading the rest of that verse. But it means surrendering to the Lord who is your portion, 
the one who alone has the words of eternal life. It also means surrendering your present. The present is filled with waiting, right? That's what I think when we think about the present, it's about waiting. It's about waiting for the next thing that's going to come. So much of the Christian life is waiting. Are you waiting to get out of school? Or are you, are you waiting to find a spouse? Or maybe you're waiting to have children, or you're waiting to get the job, or you're waiting to just you know, have that kind of vague sense of arrival, that like now I'm who I'm supposed to be. We're always waiting. But the art of gospel surrender says, don't waste your present. Don't spend all of your time waiting. It recognizes that the Lord is working in you today. It means not squandering your present. Who is it? Even though you're waiting for what's going to happen next, what's happening around you right now? Who is near you? Who has the Lord in his providence brought into your spheres? What has the Lord in his providence brought to your mind and to your heart over these years and these weeks and these months? And how is he teaching you? How is he growing you? How is he raising you today? It's easy to settle on discontent about who we are and where we are in life. And discontent can lay down deep roots. It can become a habit of the mind. But we need to take that discontent and surrender it to the Lord. Don't squander your present. I think this is the secret of the joyful life. And then lastly, and I'll close on this, of course, surrender your past, surrender your present, but surrender your future. Surrender your 10-year goals. This is a city of 10-year goals. I remember doing public relations. Mark mentioned that earlier. I was in public relations before going to seminary. I worked in downtown D.C. on K Street, and I was kind of in that world. And being a young Christian man at that time, I was told, you need to have a 10-year plan, young man. And there's nothing wrong with having a 10-year plan. The, The Proverbs teach us that we have rational, reasonable minds, and we should make plans. Man plans his way, but don't forget the second part of the verse, right? But the Lord directs his steps. So it means surrendering your 10-year plan. As a seminary professor, I see a lot of students come in with 10-year, 20-year, 30-year plans into seminary. They say, I know that I'm called to the people of Papua New Guinea, that I'm going to translate this dialect into Scripture. That's where I'm going to go. And one thing I've noticed over the last 15 years of doing this is that those 10-year plans often don't survive too far beyond seminary. That's not because the person failed. It's because as the person grew, as they got involved in other ministries, they got involved in doing other things. The Lord opened other doors, and he closed other doors, and they found themselves not in Papua New Guinea, perhaps, but as one friend of mine who has felt called to that is now a counselor to missionaries in Southeast Asia. So he's a person with a counseling degree, and they come with their families, and they get cared for. He cares for people who are in Papua New Guinea now. And guess what? He loves it. He's doing exactly what the Lord has called him to do. See, man plans his way, but the Lord guides his steps. And therefore, we need to surrender our futures. The poet Robert Frost says, The afternoon knows what the morning never suspected, and so it is with our life and our calling. You will change. Pursuing God's call is not having a rigid plan that doesn't change but recognizing that the Lord is growing you even today. He's opening doors, he's closing doors, he's giving you desires and gifts and skill sets and opportunities, and be willing to surrender your future. 
Plan your way, but remember that the Lord will hone your call by way of unexpected opportunities. And if you don't end up where your 10-year plan would take you, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that God failed you, that he did not give you the desire of your heart. But it might mean, it might just mean that you are open to and surrendered to his his leading. Surrender means trusting the Lord with your life. It doesn't mean moral perfection. Hear that. Hear that in Peter's response. Where else will we go? It doesn't mean not having doubts. I take hope in this because I have doubts. It doesn't mean not having a doubt. It doesn't mean being absolutely certain at all times, if that were even possible. It doesn't even mean that you'll be happy at all times. You see, it's human experience to experience these struggles. But what gospel surrender means is that even when you're drawn away, even when the distractions of the crowd, even when the family calling you back or the job or the reputation asks you, wait a minute, really, is this what you want to do? Is this who you really want to be about, this 2,000-year-old Jewish king? Is that what you're really about? You can turn to your rabbi, who is also the word of God, and say, where else will I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this prayer that you would strengthen us in this, that we would see Christ as our portion because the Spirit of Christ testifies to us that it is true. I pray, Lord, that you would fortify us in it so that our minds would be able to conceive of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hearts would desire it and long for it. There are people here who say, this all sounds good, but I'm not even sure that I want this. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a desire for this. And dear Lord, finally, that you would give us tongues and hands and feet that do your work and sing your praises that we too might recognize that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life and he is our portion. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.